Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. It's getting harder and harder to sleep. There's a whole world of problems on our screens. Never mind that work nowadays can bleed into all aspects of our home lives and can often feel never-ending. Modern technology is certainly contributing to the problem of sleeplessness. But can it also help? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today, we'll investigate the technology becoming available to help people monitor and improve their slumber. From smart rings to smart beds, can consumer products become our personal sleep consultants? We'll look at the tech that's already here and gaze into the future as well, What are the innovations that promise to, one day, transform our sleep? With me today to explore all of this is Ore Ogunbiyi, the Economist's consumer and healthcare correspondent. Good to have you here, Ore. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Alok? I'm good, thank you. You've been looking into sleep. Tell us what the problem here is. In short, we're all really tired and not really getting as much sleep as we used to. Um, More than a third of Americans are getting less than seven hours. And also, not only are we not getting enough sleep, we're not getting enough good quality sleep. And a lack of sleep can be linked to a lot of health problems, so like Alzheimer's and and hypertension. And it's just really important for your immune system to kind of recover. I will heartily agree with you that sleep is a very, very good idea. Um, Now, you recently wrote about consumer sleep technology for The Economist. Tell me why you got interested in the first place. And obviously, there's a huge sort of health problem. But personally, what's interesting in there for you? I think it's quite fascinating, you know, that there are all kinds of reasons why people aren't sleeping as well. People are pointing to caffeine, um, alcohol and gadgets, especially, you know, we're exposed to a lot more blue light, which affects our brain's ability to switch off and wind down. I mean, for example, before the invention of the light bulb, people were getting about nine hours sleep on average. And now we're begging people to get seven. So I just found it quite fascinating that the tech that we know is disrupting our sleep, people are turning to that same tech and hoping that it will improve their sleep. The problem is in the medical business, we have only two issues. One is good sleep or bad sleep. Ingo Fietzer is a sleep doctor. He runs a sleep centre in Berlin at one of Europe's largest university hospitals. The reality is that one third of the population worldwide in the industrial countries are good sleepers. They do not need 
any gadget. They are good sleepers until the end of life. This is good. But another third, 30% of the population are mild insomniacs, sensitive sleepers. And the rest are insomniacs. And the problem is, if you have a chronic insomnia, it lasted more than three months. Then you have to go to the sleep doctor and not to spend a lot of money for any gadgets. All these variables and gadgets are maybe interesting for the mild insomniacs or sensitive sleepers. Because this is a population who do not know what is going on with my sleep. I want to detect it and maybe I can improve my sleep with some cognitive behavior treatment or gadgets or this one or light or noise or everything and mattresses and so on. So let's say one third of the population, it's a huge amount for the industry. We'll hear more from Professor Fietzer later on. But first, Ore, you've been looking into some of the ways in which technology could help to alleviate a person's sleep deficit. And uh, we should be clear, by the way, we're not talking about trying to address sleep disorders on this programme. So, Ore, what is the tech that you've been researching designed to achieve? So basically, the idea is that you want to recreate the experience of the sleep clinic as much as possible at home. So putting the most important sensors into a wearable so that people can measure their sleep in like real world conditions, like how you'd actually sleep at home and in your bedroom. So it's just kind of to make that experience a bit more accessible and easier. And so what do they do in a sleep clinic if you're having trouble sleeping that that you're then sort of condensing into this wearable? So what they do at a sleep clinic is a polysomnogram. And they measure your brain activity, basically, and use that to infer lots of things about how well you're sleeping and how well you've kind of wound down and how you're basically getting REM sleep and non-REM sleep. It's a little bit complicated. But the most important part is that it measures your brain activity quite directly. But then at home with these wearables, it's looking at other kind of behavioural things, other things that your body does in response to your brain's activity, and then hoping that it can use that to infer what your brain is actually doing. So looking at your movement, looking at heart rate, and taking some of those measurements, or making some guesses about those measurements in the wearables you've got at home. Okay, so all of that might give you some sort of proxies to understanding how well you're sleeping at home and outside these laboratory situations where, of course, it might be an odd situation to be sleeping in anyway. So give us a little overview of what exactly is on the market right now for people who want to monitor and uh, track their sleep. There are lots of things. Um, I think people are aware that we're not sleeping as well, so we're trying to do lots of things about it. We've got watches. Think about kind of Apple watches that people use for fitness that now also have sleep functions. We have rings as well, which are a bit smaller, obviously more compact, but also kind of similarly measure things about your blood oxygen. We've got headphones that use in-ear sensors. There are also mattress and bed sensors that can kind of be used to measure your movement and how active you are during the night. Well, all of that sounds fascinating. So let's dig into a bit more detail. We've talked about wearables and smartwatches on Babbage um, already this year. Um, But I'm really curious about these smart earphones now. Uh, You tried them out, right? Yeah, I did. I tried the Cocoon headphones. My initial worry is I'm a side sleeper and I think I thought they'd be really big and cumbersome, but they're actually quite small. They're approximately a third of the size of 
Apple's AirPods. So I could actually sleep on my side. And it's basically a wire that goes round the back of my head and over my ears and then into my ears. And the thing that goes into my ears has like a little... You, you can tell that there's some kind of light of some sort that will kind of be in the sensor. And the idea is that it uses these sensors to measure how well I'm sleeping. I only focused on Cocoon, but there are lots of other in-ear wearables for measuring sleep as well. I spoke to the founder of Cocoon, Tim Antos. He actually used to work in an investment bank and had trouble sleeping while he was working in an investment bank, went into a sleep clinic himself, and then just argued that the fundamentals that he learned at the sleep clinic could actually be replicated in some of these devices and then went and started a company of his own. I was the kind of person that just couldn't switch off. Like if I hadn't done something, I hadn't done something and I'd worry all night about it. So I ended up developing insomnia myself and basically got diagnosed and did all the usual tests and then got sent into a sleep clinic. They, they do this thing called cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. And you go into a clinic once a week and you take diaries about your sleep. And it was incredibly effective for me. It really sorted me out. And it's really about just changing kind of bad habits and, and bad thought processes and kind of working out the certain techniques that you can use to just help your mind slow down, etc. So I, I went through all of that and I was kind of just frustrated at like how inconvenient it'd be. You know, I was having to go over and do these sleep sessions. So um, sleep is a very personal thing and everyone has their own individual issues. And we're at the point with current technology where we can actually start to serve those issues at home rather than having to have people go into sleep clinics. So that, that was really our mission, was how can we really help people just on their own terms. So Ari, how do these earphones actually measure the quality of your sleep? So they've got these tiny sensors in them called PPG sensors. It uses light basically to detect changes in your blood circulation. Um, so it measures things like heart rate, your cardiac cycle, and basically uses that to infer how well you're sleeping. So, for example, when you're in deeper sleep, your heart rate slows down a little bit and the app that it's synced with will tell you in the morning how much deep sleep you got and it gives you a percentage score to kind of let you know how well you slept. But what's also interesting, I think, is that these earbuds also play sounds to help you fall asleep. Tim Antos, in our interview, explained a little bit more how there are these different modes and, and how they work. There's kind of two ways that we help people sleep. So the first way is just optimizing the listening experience. So it could be that you love to listen to a podcast or audio book every night. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Babbage. The night buds will enable you to automatically listen to that, have it automatically fade out as you fall asleep. So you can pick it up at the right point the next day. And then we bring in this adaptive white noise, which is designed basically to mask out disturbances. Within our app, you can select, so you can have pink optimized, you can have brown optimized or, or just white. The difference between pink noise and white noise is where the frequencies are densest. Pink noise tends to be towards the higher frequency bands. And then brown noise is, is kind of lower bands. Some people prefer different ones. 
and they are slightly better for different circumstances. So if you had a snoring partner, brown would be the best one for you. Mm. That's a little bit more towards the lower frequencies. I mean, it's amazing that you can measure all of these things via your ear. I mean, I, I guess with detectors available now, that's possible. But I just wondered what the experience of it was. You said that, uh, you know, you, you may be concerned about having these things in your ear while sleeping and whether you'd be able to sleep or not. Did you sleep well? Did you sleep better? Yeah, it was uh, It was interesting. Um, I think... Interesting doesn't sound, that sound, that sound, <laughs> no, no. Doesn't sound like a success. <laughs> obviously, this was my personal experience, but I actually found the noise quite distracting. I don't need noise to... What was the noise? So... My first night, I went for like a pitter-patter rain sound. I didn't really enjoy that very much. But I liked that I could sleep on my side. I kind of appreciated that. But also, I have to wear a, a satin headscarf to bed, and I couldn't fit it seamlessly kind of over my headscarf. I feel like they didn't think about some of us who have to protect our hair to sleep. But I actually found that my sleep got worse. So I had a really, really great scores when I started out, like, you know, high 90s, high 80s. And by the end of my experiment, I think I was getting like a 67% sleep score. I just had to lose the, the earbuds entirely. Why do you think that is? I think I just became so much more anxious about trying to make sure I got a good score Maybe for people who struggle sleeping, this could have been great. But for me, I think it ended up making me more anxious about my sleep because I'm already a good sleeper, but I was determined to get this good score. There's actually a condition called orthosomnia when you're obsessed with getting good sleep. I, I don't know if I went quite that far, but I do think there was a degree of anxiety that built up. And it's something that Cocoon are, are aware of. And so they say because of that, they only give you kind of like a snapshot of how well you slept. You get a percentage, you get some rough kind of estimates, but you don't get really detailed data so that you don't become obsessed with it. But it still affected me. Okay, so that's the smart earphones. What about the smart ring? So the smart ring I looked into was the Aura ring, and kind of like the sensors in your ear, but just in a different place. It uses infrared light technology as well to measure mostly blood oxygen. And it, it does it in the finger because if you're at the hospital and you also needed to measure things concerning your blood. They take your finger and they put it inside a pulse oximeter. So that's like a more accurate site, supposedly, for measuring some of these values around circulation. It was interesting. There are some limitations, though. It's not great for measuring other kinds of activities. So people also wear the ring for things like exercise, and it's not too great for that. Um, it's also not very cheap. I think people maybe should consider that. And there are also still questions about the accuracy of these sensors, similarly with the earphones in terms of how well they compare with the sleep clinic kind of experience that they're trying to replicate if all they're looking at are things to do with your blood and your oxygen and not actually directly your brain activity. Yeah, the Uru ring, if nothing else, has become very uh, sort of trendy in the sort of Silicon Valley types and people sort of wearing them. And it's, it's, it's almost like a piece of jewellery in some respects, isn't it? Exactly. Um, you also looked at smart mattresses. Now, there's a, there's a phrase I didn't think I'd ever say, a smart mattress. Well, what does that do and how does it work? Well, it's probably going to be the first of many. Um, it had sensors in it that detect your movement, but it also has this water cooling technology. So temperature plays a really important role in how well you sleep. For you to go to sleep, your body needs to cool down in relation to your surroundings. And for you to wake up, it has to be the other way around. And so this thermoregulating mattress kind of responds to that by gently waking you up in the morning 
using temperature, but by also helping you fall asleep by cooling down the bed before you go to sleep and warming it up to wake you up in the morning. I actually spoke to Matteo Francaschetti of Eight Sleep. That's one of the companies that makes these mattresses. It's quite a high-end option, but he split, explained why he's working on these smart mattresses as opposed to wearables, which is the route that everyone else seems to be going down. The bottom line is this. It's just a matter of collecting data. That is what we are doing. And so you need to keep comparing your device to medical-grade polysomnographs. As you keep comparing, then the algos will automatically improve over time, and you will be able to get there. So the key difference between us and a wearable outside being a device that you don't need to wear or you don't need to charge, so wearable, non-wearable, but the key difference is data is not the end point for us. Data is just the starting point, and based on the data, we automatically adjust temperature in real time for you during the night. The reason is your body temperature changes during the night, so that is part or not of your physiological process. And so we just help your body uh, to transition across all these different temperature stages, which need to change based on sleep stages or other environmental factors or also personal factors, like what did you eat and what did you drink? So it's really interesting that with the mattress, you're not just measuring things, you can actually try and influence somebody's sleep um, in a sort of smart and intelligent way, which is fascinating. Um, although I guess it does mean that if you travel or if you go to hotels and things, you're not going to have the same sort of uh, system helping you go to sleep. Now, Ori, you've been reporting on all of this sleep tech, but I sense in your voice that you're a little bit sceptical. Um, what are the biggest limitations of the products you think um, that you've been looking into? Yeah, I think that there are pros and cons to them all. Um, the mattress is interesting because it's the only kind of technology that's responsive, but it's also super expensive. I think you look at the wearables, I mean, something like the Aura Ring has quite a long battery life, but if you look at watches, people are used to charging their gadgets overnight. You wouldn't wear a watch to sleep. You'd be more likely to charge it overnight instead and wear it during the day. And also most of the watches, their battery lives don't even last um, up to 24 hours when you look at like normal usage. So I think maybe for someone who maybe struggled with sleep a little bit more, these insights could be helpful and, and help them decide whether or not they need to go into a sleep clinic. But I'm not sure we're quite at the point where it can completely substitute that technology just because it's not quite as accurate in, in what it can measure. What about data as well? I mean, you know, this is kind of very intimate information about a person, how they're sleeping, you know, how long they're sleeping, you know, all that kind of stuff, perhaps even GPS signals of where they're sleeping. How should companies be thinking about handling this data? Yeah, well, they obviously should be careful with it. It comes back to that whole privacy and personalization trade-off that we're constantly having to make with consumer health products, especially the wearables. These companies need more data for them to be able to make their algorithms more accurate. But at the same time, that does come with certain privacy risks. So you'd hope that they'd look after it carefully. Yeah, I think the key seems to be to be transparent with what's going on so that people are not surprised if their data is used in places um, and to have transparent methods for approvals for all these things, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Alok. There's a lot more work that needs to be done by the companies in this space. But how do clinicians like Ingo Fietzer rate these kinds of products? All the gadgets and wearables and mattresses and glasses and earplugs and whatever you can buy for a better sleep, there is no research behind. 
Research, it means I take, let's say, 30 people with not so good sleep, mild insomnia, and I try the gadget, a placebo gadget with a gadget, a controlled clinical study, you know, with a placebo arm, controlled arm, minimum of 30, 40 people. And this is a study you can publish in a good scientific journal. And if you get a positive result, then you may advertise, sure. Sleep gadgets available to consumers, like wearable trackers, don't claim to be medical grade. However, patients do still bring the data they gather into the clinic. The problem is we have an outpatient department in Germany and it's the biggest one in Germany. We have a lot of patients and every second patient comes with, with a printout of a variable. Yeah? Here, doctor, here is my bad sleep. And our recommendation is, sorry, <laughs> put your paper away. I do not want to see it. I even do not look on it because it does not help, you know. According to Professor Fietzer, the parameters measured by these wearables, which give users good or bad sleep ratings, don't really have much grounding in sleep science. Consumer devices measure things like a person's body movements or their heart rate, but they can only infer what that means about their quality of sleep. In a scientific sleep lab, sleep is assessed by a polysomnography test, or a PSG, which can record things like brain waves. A patient lies down in the lab with a bunch of electrodes attached to their head and various other monitoring devices switched on. The bits that monitor brain activity, those electrodes stuck to the head, are called an EEG. You can use any available variable or gadget for uh, scoring sleep. But if you use 10 different variables, you get 10 different results. This is a problem. The method of detection of sleep quality, the standard method, it's the EEG. If you try to measure the sleep quality just with the actigraphy, body movements, yeah, or let's say just with a heart rate, with a heart rate variability and all these uh, kind of indirect parameters, when you get an indirect result and not the really result of the sleep quality. Unfortunately, until now, you cannot compare the standard polysomnography or the standard sleep measurement with all these variables. Coming up, what are the ideas on the horizon? Ideas that could one day make a difference to the quality of our sleep. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
Consumer sleep technology has a long way to go. But if there's one area where wearables have made big strides in recent years, it's in the quality of their sensors. If we take it back to how we usually measure sleep 20 years ago, non-invasively, so thinking about it beyond polysonography, there was this thing called actigraphy, which is a precedent to what a lot of new commercial wearable devices, like wrist wearable devices are. They only were able to look at, at movement signals, and they were able to do so in not a very high-resolution way. Ignacio Perez Pozuelo is a researcher in medicine and computer science. He's a scientific advisor for Cerno Health, a digital health company specialising in sleep. If you think about how the advancement of sensor technology and miniaturised sensor technology specifically has changed the field and changed the accuracy of measurements, with the inclusion of, again, we've moved from actigraphy to accelerometry, which is much more high resolution and fine grain, and we've incorporated heart rate. As a consequence of that, we've been able to start having crude measures of sleep stages with the addition of, of these two things. I think a lot of what the future holds for us is similar, right? Like new sensors incorporated into to the devices will allow us to get better inferences of, of sleep as traditionally measured by uh, polysonography. But importantly, we'll also be able to capture things that polysonography maybe in its traditional way wasn't able to capture. For now, the focus is on replicating polysomnographies, or PSGs. But to truly miniaturise an entire sleep lab into a wearable device, you need to add one vital function, the ability to conveniently and effectively measure the activity of the brain. That's usually done using EEG sensors, those electrodes attached to the scalp that we talked about earlier. But there's been a lot of interest recently with in-ear EEGs. These would measure brain activity through a device that looks a bit like a pair of earbuds. In-ear EEGs do a really, really strong job these days at getting close to actually the the ground truth, which is polysonography. The big reason behind that is they're as close to the brain as it gets in terms of wearable-like technologies, right? You literally have a reduced array EEG in your ear. So they fared quite well at things like five-stage classification and even micro-event detection. The problem with that is that if you think about consumer tech in terms of, of what people like to wear in the ears these days, people are adopting wireless headphones that use Bluetooth technologies, the amount of technology packed into an in-ear EEG often requires quite a big device to be connected to the in-ear EEG. So a lot of the future work that needs to be addressed is on how do we miniaturize these devices to be able to fit on, again, something like a wireless headphone set. And I haven't really seen that yet. Another brain monitoring device that does seem promising is contained within a headband. In fact, these devices are already being used in research settings. We are neuroscientists. We care about what's going on in the brain. Tristan Beckenstein is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge and the Alan Turing Institute in Britain. We use home devices that are wearables, but they measure brain activity, basically electroencephalography. Low density, a few electrodes in the front of the head, a few electrodes in the back of the head of one of these wearables that measure brain activity, which is the actual real measure of sleep. A headband that could measure brain activity sounds like a very useful sleep gadget. The brainwaves give you a course 
measure of the different stages of sleep. So similar to what you would get in the sleep lab, but with maybe less definition or, or less precision in the information, but still quite good, you can get an impression of when the person started to transition from fully awake with the eyes closed to light sleep, then how long they stay in light sleep and went into deep sleep, whether they reach REM, REM stage, and then they oscillated between REM and deep sleep and light sleep during the night until they woke up. So to a certain degree, the signal that you get of the headbands that the people use at home, if it's correctly positioned and it doesn't move too much during the night, it would be, I would say, 70% as good as if you spend the whole night really uncomfortable in a sleep lab. So I think there is a balance between being able to do a sleep study at home where the person is in their own bed, you know, slightly different because they're wearing something on their heads, as opposed to trying to see what's the pattern of sleep of someone, inviting them to sleep in a hospital. This has been the holy grail of personalized medicine. Tracking your sleep is one way to figure out what's making you tired. But there might, of course, be other factors at play as well. When it all started, I was getting probably five hours, most on a good night, of continuous sleep. Sandra Dalton-Smith is a doctor and an author. She spends her time researching rest. I'm the type of physician who I have calls. So sometimes I'm on call for 24, 36 or more hours. And so when you're on call, your sleep is disrupted. So even when you get sleep, it's not really continuous. So I thought, yes, I just need more sleep. So I really made a concerted effort to get eight, nine hours of as deep quality sleep as I possibly could. And so I did all the studies, I had all the tests, and there was absolutely nothing wrong with my sleep. Everything was perfectly normal. And I think at that point, that's when it really dawned on me, there is something else that's making me so exhausted. And I have to identify it. Dr. Dalton Smith realized that she wasn't giving her body the opportunity to get quality sleep. I think many people have difficulty with sleep because they focus all of their attention on just sleep and not the things that they do to allow them to get to a place for their body to experience high quality sleep. Majority of my research has been focused around really differentiating between sleep and rest because they are not the same thing. rest is about restoration. It's not simply cessation activities like sleeping and napping. It's those things that you do to restore your energy. So sometimes those are restorative activities, restorative processes. Physical rest actually has two components. It has a passive component, which is the sleeping and napping. And then it has an active component, which are those things like yoga or stretching or using a foam roller after a jog or doing some type of leisure walk to kind of wind down the muscles, improve the circulation and the lymphatics. What's required for us to get into deeper levels of sleep. The mental rest is required. Your mind has to be able to quiet down. Physical rest is required, the active component, while your muscles aren't tight and tense and your body is able to drift into sleep. Sensory rest is required because if you've ever tried to sleep with the TV blaring and all the lights on, you know that's not going to happen. Your body needs some sensory deprivation to some level, darkness, some decrease in the sounds or either white noise, some way of helping the senses to calm down. 
all of these types of rest help us to be able to sleep. But if you omit getting any of these types and you have a deficit in that area, it's going to make it very difficult to get into deeper levels of sleep. Dr. Dalton Smith believes that today's technology could help people to incorporate resting into their daily routines, which in turn would allow them to reach those deeper levels of sleep. Meditation is a form of mental rest that some people use. So being able to focus their thoughts and concentrate uh, on, on a single thought rather than multitasking and having their brain jump around all day, it can be beneficial to have some mindfulness type techniques that you learn. And there are apps that walk you through that process and teach you those types of things. There are apps that have the white noise. Some people benefit greatly from that. They have so much head noise that the white noise kind of makes their thoughts center in. So a couple of different ways that I've seen people use technology that they found to be very beneficial. As for technology to track and improve sleep, what if restlessness or stress could be measured throughout the day? Could that enable a higher quality of sleep? My dream vision around that would really be something that actually allows people to be able to track not only how they are sleeping, but how their body's responding to their stressors throughout the day, because stress is not something we can get rid of. So people are consistently dealing with stress. And so their ability to sleep and to rest is directly affected to the changes, challenges and stressors in their life. And so rather than wait two weeks later when the person's like already feeling the effects of this response to go ahead and be able to prompt them, you know, now is the time to do X, Y, Z, or now is the time to do a quick assessment to see which area is getting drained during this stress response so that we don't let people get into the place where they're already dealing with the deficit, but we can actually stay on top of it. Exactly how to measure stress is an open question. A complicating factor, of course, is that stress affects each person differently. Once the scientific understanding does get better, bioengineers like Ignacio Perez Pozuelo hope to be able to collect data through wearable devices around the clock, and they hope that that will improve people's health. Something that we will see incorporated in commercial wearable devices is things like galvanic skin conduction, which we've shown in research work. It's very good to use for tracking of stress. I think that the measurement of behavioral data during the day and things like stress and restfulness will play a pretty big role because, again, it gives us a, an added dimension to what we were able to do in the past, uh, which is only think about sleep by itself. There is a big possibility of us complementing what we were only able to capture through diaries or questionnaires with actual objective monitoring data that you can capture through these devices. It's clear that we need even better sensors and large amounts of data on how they work best if we want wearable sleep technology to become more useful for individuals. We also need to get much better at understanding the science of sleep, rest and stress. And finally, there's the perennial problem associated with any technology that strives to understand and improve our lives. How should companies that want to sell you products treat your data? This story of sleep technology is only just beginning. Thanks to Ingo Fietzer, Ignacio Perez Pozuelo, Tristan Beckenstein, 
Sandra Dalton-Smith, and The Economist's Ore Ugenbiyi. You can read much more about health technology by subscribing to The Economist. And look out next month for our Technology Quarterly, which will explore wearable sensors and what to do with all your personal data. Listeners can get a special introductory subscription rate by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.